The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, April 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist, with Alexandra Petri filling in for Mike Pesca. Dear internet friends, I have news about Steve Bannon and tepid meats and bombs. And on the spiel, Jesus Christ. So on the meat front, which is a phrase, restaurant inspectors at Mar-a-Lago found that the meats there, actual meats, not euphemisms of any sort, were not the right temperature. So there's jokes to be made about Donald Trump's unsafe meats, but this is a classy podcast and I have dignity. But what I mean was the meat that they were serving at Mar-a-Lago, the restaurant inspectors found, the chicken they were keeping at 49 degrees, the beef and the duck were at 50 degrees, and the ham was at 57 degrees. Ham at 57 degrees was actually the name of my band during college. We went on tour with a slice of cheese. No wonder Donald Trump always orders his steak well done. If you realize that all the Mar-a-Lago meats are being stored at dangerous temperatures, of course you'd cook the meat so thoroughly that it became a hard hockey puck on the plate. So clearly, Mar-a-Lago, what you're paying for is the ambiance, the world-class security, and the access to a confused foreign leader who just wants to have a meeting for once without golfing. Also, Steve Bannon is sad. Someone who described himself as a friend of Steve Bannon has likened his position in the White House to a terminally ill family member who's been moved to hospice care. Steve, this is on you. You always said you wanted to be like Thomas Cromwell at the court of Henry VIII. Should have checked the end of that story before working for a large man with many wives, Steve. See how this works out. It's not all gravy and disestablishment and being given the custody of the king's privy seal. One day you're arranging clever alliances with foreign women. The next day you're being beheaded. Look to your goods and chattels, Steve. Also, we have dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan. And this is not my phrase. This is the name of the bomb, the mother of all bombs. It is the biggest non-nuclear bomb, except for this thing Russia claims to have, called the father of all bombs. So I guess it's good that all bombs come from a stable two-parent household, even if they are geographically separated. And I guess it's also good that we gave Donald Trump that positive feedback the last time a bomb dropped. So now whenever he starts bombing in the ratings, he'll start bombing outside of the ratings. Not unlike that joke. Now, speaking of terrifying things that may or may not happen, Mallory Ortberg of the Slate Dear Prudence advice column and podcast is here with us next. Truly stoked to be here uh, with Mallory Ortberg, the current Dear Prudence, author of the brilliant deconstruction text from Jane Eyre, and former writer for The Toast, a universally beloved humor site that specialized in clowning on the Western canon, uh, who has another book, I believe soon, that has been described on Twitter as Shirley Jackson and John Steinbeck and the Bible and P.G. Woodhouse all in one. Thank you for joining us. Well, uh, thank you for, for joining me. That description sounds amazing. Uh, I'm really glad to have heard it. You are an excruciatingly well-read person who does a lot of thinking about, like, feminism and also about uh, literature. And I've been, we're living in an increasingly bonkers news world these days where people are making a lot of dystopian comparisons. And I would like to hear your thoughts on dystopia. Okay, yes, absolutely. I feel like 
Orwell is like having that moment where everyone's buying him on Amazon and like Atwood is now having her like moment with Handmaid's Tale. And Huxley is sort of what happened to him? Where'd he go? What's going on with him? Great question. Um, The only thing I think I've read of Huxley is Brave New World and not a fan. Um, So he switches protagonist midway through. That's an unacceptable author move, I think. I actually could go for that, depending on on how that works. But uh, yeah, it's been long enough since I read it that kind of all I remember is not liking it. Yeah. But yes, you are you are totally correct in that Handmaid's Tale is having a total moment right now um, in a, in a way that's really fascinating. The way people will often be saying the same couple of things about it, which I find really interesting. Like, what will you say the couple of things are? Because I think I think you're right. I'm just trying to think of what the things are. I think often there will be, like, someone will mention a news item and then say, this is just like The Handmaid's Tale, or they will recommend the reading of The Handmaid's Tale in a way that suggests it is more timely than ever, and somehow that reading it will help to inoculate the reader against fascism. And it's almost always in those exact phrases. Yeah. Now more than ever, uh, especially relevant. Uh, if you haven't already, you have to read it. And I find that kind of interesting and uh, don't necessarily find it especially timely. So I did this whole podcast about this a couple of weeks ago about the BBC adaptation. And it actually sounds like they're going to do some different stuff for the TV show that sounds really interesting. I don't know if you remember this, but the one of the producers was talking a couple of months ago about the show and talking about casting specifically black female actors because he talked about there are no black people in the book. Yeah. Um, I don't know when the last time you read it was, but they the book actually gets rid of all. Yeah, they send them to like um, Michigan or something. Yeah, there's this kind of unspecified colony where the sons, the sons of, of Ham, Ham. <laughs> um, uh, are sent. So the the book does away with black people. And that's pretty fascinating because the anxieties that get in- explored in The Handmaid's Tale are all these things uh, that have historically happened within North America. Obviously, Margaret Atwood is Canadian. Some of these things happened in, in both Canada and the United States, some just in the United States, some vice versa. But it's all about, like, what if travel were restricted literacy were restricted, reproductive rights were taken away, uh, there were public lynchings for disobeying any of these laws, like all things that have happened. Yeah, like this story to, sounds familiar. Right. Like the things that historically the like government in the United States and in Canada have done to uh, like First Nations peoples, black people, but but not to middle class white people. And so The Handmaid's Tale kind of in effect is sort of like, what if all those things happened again, but this time to to a college-educated white woman? And so that's what I kind of mean when I say it's interesting when they say now more than ever, because it actually does not feel like that is what is about to be the next thing that happens, right? Like between the travel ban and a lot of other sort of things that have been popping up in the news, those are not what are like obviously there are ways in which reproductive health is being threatened like it's not it's not completely uh, totally untethered from reality but like college educated middle class heterosexual white women are not in a position to face any of those immediate threats and so it's really interesting to see people talk about like oh this is about to happen and it's like man this is actually a book with um almost no people of color except for in the sort of framing device in the beginning and end yeah so to talk about that as it when it seems like most of the like threats coming from the current administration right now have been towards like uh, people of color, Muslims. Again, not not to say Handmaid's Tale is totally wrong. I think there's a lot of interesting things going on there that are worth talking about. But it's not um, 
you know, middle class white women are not getting their driver's licenses taken away or forbidden to read. So it's sort of interesting. Yeah. Why is that the book that and again, that's not the book that everyone is talking about. Right. It's generally like middle certain, class middle white class men white women. women. Yeah. And men, too. Right. Like yeah. who are, I think, genuinely well intentioned in in saying it. Again, not that it's totally, totally off the mark. There's plenty of stuff in there that I think is fascinating. But it is interesting that that's the book that, like, our, my demographic is mentioning the most when there are probably several others that would be uh, much, much closer to the mark. I actually, I think it's fascinating that you say that because one of the things that struck me about, like, the Women's March and, like, a lot of the movement recently has been sort of... When Hillary lost the election, a lot of like white women who were like, the world is my oyster were like, oh, maybe there are limits on me. And so there's been this weird like I, too, am oppressed and therefore like this sort of weird catching up, but also well-intentioned folks in like knit hats being like, oh, we get it. We have to be here now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And I think there's always ways in which, you know, when a person first starts to think about ways in which like society is set up that's like harmful, that perpetuates oppression, often, uh, you know, depending on how many ways you yourself are targeted by those things, you, you will you will think of those things first. And those will often seem like the most pressing issues. And some of the like work um, that we all get to do is realizing, okay, this is my experience. Um, what are other people's experience? Are they the same as mine? Are they different? What are they saying about it? Um, and to sort of um, do the imaginative work of what is it like for other people? And, and what are ways in which my concern may not be their immediate concerns. And what does it mean when I extrapolate outwards based on solely my own experience? Um, and what does that look like? And how do I think about other people? And how do I listen? And, and what, what makes me feel uncomfortable? And what makes me feel threatened? That's, that's really hard work. And, and, and we all get to do it in, in different ways. I think there was, there was a lot of conversation around the election. I think it was, you know, more than half of all white women who voted, voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. So this real moment of, there's not this consensus among white women of here are various axes of oppression and we should be pushing back against them both on our own behalf and on others' behalf and acknowledge ways in which we are not oppressed. There was this real sense of this system is actually working fine for me and I'm getting what I need out of it so it doesn't matter if it hurts somebody else. Yeah. Um, so that then... The kind of book that and again, these are not the same people, right? Like the people who are voting, the white women who have voted for Trump are not also the ones who are saying, let's all read The Handmaid's Tale. But it it speaks to a certain type of conversational limit that exists right now of sort of the first thing I'm imagining, the first thing I'm afraid of is this version of the future that is based upon the past of people of color, but with an imaginary version of myself. And that's uh, I think worth really taking a look at. And I think it'll be interesting, you know, the, the producer who had talked about casting uh, women of color and specifically black women in The Handmaid's Tale was like, I, I think it's it's difficult to adapt a book that may have an almost exclusively white cast to make a certain point. But when you're watching it, that looks really different. And yeah. kind of wanted to explore different ideas and themes. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like. And maybe that'll be really fascinating. So I'm kind of eager to to see how that goes. No, because I think director Liesl Tommy was always like, I'm happy to direct something all white if it's about whiteness. But if you're telling me, like, you can't colorblind cast it, like, you're saying that this story is explicitly about, like, the white experience and I will deal with it in that way. And so right. if you're trying to make Handmaid's Tale not just about the imaginative work of, like, transferring the suffering that uh, people of color historically have into the body of a white woman, then 
how do you do that? Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. So what's a dystopia book you would recommend? I don't know if it quite qualifies as dystopia, depending on the outlook, but certainly Canticle for Leibowitz, I think, is the book if you want to talk about, like, classic, speculative, post-apocalyptic fiction. And so I think everyone should read that. What's, like, a good utopian positive thing? Because I know Star Trek was the whole, like, oh, in space, everything will be fine vision. Yeah, no, but certainly, like, a very optimistic view of the future in that it would at least attempt to envision what if there were problems that we were not trying to solve with violence, what would that look like? Yes, I'm always here to put a plug in for Star Trek. So meanwhile, across the universe, you're actually writing a Star Wars thing. I am. It's true. It's a short story collection, uh, 40 stories uh, of it's called Star Wars from a certain point of view. And it's a bunch of different writers who are taking various characters from A New Hope and writing scenes, either what took place in the movie or before from that character's perspective. And I am uh, writing one of them and I'm very excited about it. I was really jazzed at the character that I ended up getting to pick. What I, I love, one of the things I love about the Star Wars universe is it feels so rich and full and like every person sort of in the corner of the screen could have their own completely separate story that would be just as fun to watch. Do you have like a genre film that you're like, if I could do like a horror movie or a rom-com or whatever, that's like your Star Wars, you know, they gave you millions of dollars. Man, uh, it's hard for me to imagine horror in the Star Wars universe because it is, that's, yeah, that's somehow hard for me to imagine. Not that I don't think it could be done. But I feel like we've got elements of the rom-com. We've had plenty yeah. of that. And they've all, they have they do a lot of, like, workplace mockumentaries when they're doing jokes about Star Wars. So I feel like that's already pretty well-tread. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to imagine in part because I came to Star Wars at such a young age. And it was so, like, it never felt like a choice, if that makes sense. I, I wrote yeah. about this a while back about, like, my different, not that anyone cares about anyone else's feelings towards either Star Wars or Star Trek, but it's sort of like trying to tell people what you dreamed last night. Like, no one wants to hear it, but we all can't stop talking about yeah. it. And I feel like Star Wars is something that I had no choice in, which is not to say I wish I had had a choice in. It's just this is a part of my genetic makeup. Um, whereas I came to Star Trek as an adult, and so it feels very, like, consciously chosen. So sometimes I feel like I can't even think about what I would want to do in Star Wars because it's just It's, it's just part a part of, of your makeup, yeah. Mallory, thanks for coming on The Gist. Thanks for having a gist for me to appear upon. Mallory Ortberg is Dear Prudence, she's writing a Star Wars book, and she joined us today from Berkeley. And now the spiel. So this has been a little bit of a fun throwback week in the sense that there were bad things that happened that the Internet got indignant about that were not having to do with Donald Trump. United Airlines did a terrible thing. So on Sunday, security officers dragged Dr. David Dow off a United Airlines flight after he refused to give up his seat so that four United personnel could board the plane. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. My God. My God. What are you doing? He was bloodied. And as his family informed us during a press conference today with their lawyer, he had a concussion, lost two teeth. It was bad enough that this happened, but everything United did afterwards just made it worse. 
First, they issued a statement saying, Flight 3411 from Chicago to Louisville was overbooked, and after our team looked for volunteers, one customer refused to leave the aircraft voluntarily, and law enforcement was asked to come to the gate. Which is nice and Orwellian. Refused to leave the aircraft voluntarily. So what they're saying is, he sat there. He did not give up his seat that he had paid for. Refused to volunteer. I I, I guess it's good that we have a creepy term for that now. Also, the CEO of United, Oscar Munoz, said, I apologize for having to re-accommodate these customers. In March, PR Week awarded him Communicator of the Year, and they said on Thursday... It's fair to say that if PR Week was choosing its Communicator of the Year now, we would not be awarding it to Oscar Munoz. Fortunately, then, Sean Spicer said something about Hitler, so this was not the week's biggest PR disaster. But something else, to me, stunning happened, which was that Dr. Dow's home newspaper, The Courier-Journal, decided that they should run a story about his troubled past. Which, to me, if you're the victim of violence in an incident like this, it doesn't seem like that's relevant. Sure, there's a lot of information that's public, but it's up to newspapers to exercise discretion about what they share. On one level, I do get it, because we like to think bad things don't happen to good people. So when something bad does happen, you get stories that are like, victim was no angel, and doctor had troubled past. So, in time for Easter week, and in keeping with these guidelines, I took the liberty of rewriting a familiar story... The gentleman arrested Thursday and tried before Pontius Pilate had a troubled background. Born, possibly out of wedlock, in a stable, this jobless 30-something of Middle Eastern origin had had previous run-ins with local authorities for disturbing the peace and had become increasingly associated with the members of a fringe religious group. He spent the majority of his time in the company of sex workers and criminals. He'd recently committed an incident of vandalism in a community center when he wrecked the tables of several licensed moneylenders and bird sellers. At the time of his arrest, he had not held a fixed residence for years. Instead, he led an itinerant lifestyle, staying at the homes of friends and advocating the redistribution of wealth. He'd come to the attention of the authorities more than once for his unauthorized distribution of food, disruptive public behavior, and participation in farcical aquatic ceremonies. Some say that his brutal punishment at the hands of the state was out of proportion to and unrelated to any of these incidents in his record. After all, he was no angel. And also on Sunday, a scorpion, it turns out, fell from a United overhead luggage bin and stung someone. Because when it rains and pours, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot about that scorpion's background now. But, as he explained, we knew he was a scorpion when we brought him on board. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produced The Gist. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Gist, a podcast with a checkered past. Oomperoo, deperoo, duperoo. Thank you for listening. Have a glorious week.